Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. It's Tuesday, March the 15th. We're headed to better weather later in the week, and we're a lot more dialed in than we were yesterday. That time change whacked us, but now we're feeling rested, comfortable, and we've got great content on the show today, and it begins now. So let's get to uh, let's get to Russia and Ukraine. I think we can do that here um, after the uh, House of Lords sleeping moment. We had a guy named John Spencer on the show yesterday. He's a retired army major. Uh, what I was watching on television yesterday certainly documented uh, what John Spencer was saying. And I'll get there in just a second. But it's patently obvious that uh, Russia is escalating civilian bombings. We can debate till, you know, till we fall asleep, really, what a war crime is and, and what's not. Many war crimes, if you bomb any kind of residential area, that feels like you're targeting residents and you're not targeting people set to fight. And I watched, a, a, I wouldn't even call it a documentary. That makes it sound like it's old. But um, a documentary that's that's current times with a lot of residents in Kiev saying, where are we going to go? We actually feel safer here. The Russians haven't penetrated our city center yet. I'm probably safer here living in my apartment building than I am packing a suitcase, taking a little car on the road and trying to drive through checkpoints or trying to get to the border. I didn't make my move when I could have. I'm here now. That was kind of the concept. So Russia is now bombing uh, Kiev apartments and killing Ukrainian civilians. This is really significant today. Leaders of Poland, Czech Republic, Slovenia, all plan to visit Kiev today. And that's a big show of support. Now, Russia knows this. They know that this will be the case. Um, so do they kind of push towards the city center? This will be a bizarre moment in time today. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Zelensky addressing uh, Canadian Parliament at 11 o'clock. You're going to hear that, by the way, during Kelly's show on uh, 640 Toronto. We'll broadcast uh, Zelensky. Now, Zelensky obviously will be using an interpreter. So you hear it live. I'm sure you'll hear the prime minister introduce him uh, and onward and upward. But this is going to be a significant moment today to have three leaders, prime ministers from Poland, Czech Republic, Slovenia, all visiting Kiev in a show of solidarity with Zelensky and his government. That's meant to show the European Union is full backing of Ukraine and its freedom and independence here. All that makes sense to me. John Spencer said this yesterday about what Zelensky's done as an inspirational force here. And then I want to talk a little bit about the information that's getting to Russia about what's happening here. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of maneuvering around the traditional. And you may have seen the, uh, the, the producer yesterday stand up with the sign behind the anchor on Russian television. Heaven forbid um, we don't even we don't have a clue what's going to happen to her uh, in the next several weeks or several years, to be blunt. But John Spencer said this about the inspiration that Zelensky's provided, not just for the military, but for citizens to pick up arms and say, we've got somebody here who has our back. It doesn't matter how powerful the equipment is. Soldiers don't fight for dictators. They fight for a cause and they fight for each other. If Zelensky would have left, it would have been Afghanistan all over again. So let's give that guy some credit because had he left, you would have seen military units falling apart, let alone the civilians fighting. The fact that he's still there, um, this is the aspects about being in the military. People just don't understand. I mean, how people, it's not about weapons. This is definitely in the urban train. It's not about numbers. Russians don't have the numbers to, to do what they've tried trying to do. But this is about the will to fight. And Zelensky has given the Ukrainian people the will to keep fighting. It's really rather remarkable. It's still happening. And we'll be four weeks in as of tomorrow uh, in the evening. I know we're looking forward here. Like, like again, we have to pinch ourselves sometimes about who we are, where we live, Feels like we won the lottery, doesn't it? We're looking forward to St. Patrick's Day and having a having a beer outside and watching some basketball maybe on Thursday, going places on the weekend. We've got March break. We've got kids in camps. And and we're talking about seeing these images regularly. We can dive into those images and feel their pain and their suffering. We can get a little wet-eyed watching this. We do. We do. But we can also walk away and get out of the room. And they can't. Uh, I thought it was really important. Spencer made a great point on the show yesterday as well. Um, and I'm, I'm going to tell you where you can buy his book, too, because I, I don't have to plug it, but I, I'm dying to read this book uh, in the summer. Spencer made this point about urban warfare and why when you're going, quote unquote, on the road as Russia is, you're asking for trouble because Ukraine and Ukrainian citizens know all the best hiding places. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really basic. And I mean, you don't have to be an expert to understand. Um, I, I wrote something called the eight, war, eight Rules of Urban Warfare, which, um, so it's not just knowing the terrain, it's the physical environment. The fact that cities in themselves, urban areas, if you think about, are naturally made fighting positions. Concrete buildings make really good bunkers. Now, you can knock them down, um, but when you enter as a military, you want to put a lot of fire into it because you can't see where the enemy is. Just like you said, you go down the street and not know that the enemy's there is it's scary. One of the biggest things I'm noticing is reading from people who have sit up relatives in Russia, usually older relatives. I mean, that's just that's anecdotally what you're hearing older rather than younger. And um, people are in Ukraine or they're in other parts of Europe or they've escaped from Ukraine, no less. And they contact who knows from how if they're able to do phone calls or on WhatsApp or however, and they speak to their older relatives, and the older relatives are saying, Ukraine's not being bombed. What are you talking about? I'm watching TV here. And that's not necessarily happening. And um, there's d- great debate about what's misinformation and what's disinformation. I think they're a lot closer, to be honest. I think people have made these tr- wide distinctions between those two particular words. Vitaly Klitschko, the uh, very famous former professional boxer, is mayor of Kiev. He was a phenomenal boxer in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, he owes me money. I, I rented a lot of his fights, and he would destroy the opponent within like three rounds. I'm like, you need to write me a check for $39.95 US. I, I want that money back. But Vitaly Klitschko made this video yesterday. Now, there's a lot of, uh, of um, how would I put it, uh, blown up urban area behind him but he's out there making the video you can hear the anger in his voice you can also tell he was great at at selling a fight uh in press conferences and whatnot and obviously a great speaker uh him and his brother were fantastic boxers um but nonetheless i think a video like this and you'll hear the audio of it is made just so there'd be enough traffic three million people have seen it three million that doesn't get to everybody in russia not by a long shot but it's klitschko letting people know that the damage is real the russian aggression is real and as he says it two or three times listen to this he notes this is vladimir putin's war that's what russians war against the civilians look like destroyed buildings destroyed infrastructure city bus just got hit by the rocket lives are getting lost that's the war that russia started that's the city of kiev and many cities in ukraine were destroyed lives were taken that's the truth this images is the truth of russian war against ukraine putin's war against ukraine that's what it looks like So you see, that's by design. And I think that's important to note. Get that video out there. Implicate Putin. Tell the truth about it. But also make sure people know because people will share those videos. I know there's a lot of blockage of proper information on Twitter. I got one more for you. And I discovered this guy last night. Bobby Ghosh is a a member of uh, he's he's with Bloomberg, but he's also written for time before. I thought I'd recognize the name and I have written uh, uh, read him rather in time before he makes a great point on msnbc yesterday is what's our endurance level for this we talked about this just now you can leave the room you can change the channel you can watch a sitcom you can watch something on crave you can turn netflix on you can do all that stuff to turn away from this i always feel like you have to check in on this for uh you know a half hour an hour a night we're watching a lot of this we're watching a lot of bbc news in our house we're watching a lot of the coverage of the war Um, And I know people kind of roll their eyes and you can about some of the CNN shows, right? We just had Chris Cuomo vanish. Uh, Don Lemon doesn't exactly do it for me, but you can't deny the reporting from the Jim Shudos and the Clarissa Awards there. Here's what Bobby Ghost says about what's our endurance level for watching terrible images and how they hit us. Can we keep doing this a couple months from now? Because the fighting's not going to stop a couple months from now. I thought this was really prescient to say. Here's what he said. What we've noticed with those other wars is that over time, there's a desensitization that takes place. It's human nature. Right now in the West, we are all incredibly moved by images of bravery, moved by, shattered by images of children being, uh, being hurt and killed. The big question is, will we still feel that way a week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now? Because we know that the Russian military 
even with all the damage that's been inflicted upon us, has the capacity because of the nature of their leadership to continue fighting for a very long time. Yeah. So what are we going to do? We're only three and a half weeks into this. It's unbelievable. Some of the destruction that we've seen so far. But are we in the Western world going to be able to keep our eyes on the ball here? It's okay to do your own uh, your own stuff. It's okay to lighten up the mood a little bit. It's okay to go for a run, go to a ball game, go have a go have a drink with somebody. All those things that we're going to get back to. There's still people out there, as you know, in the medical community that don't want us to do that. Um, But I'm telling you that I think we're okay to do these things. And I think there's doctors that would back that up also. But this has to stay a focus, okay? We've never lived through anything quite like this in terms of a worldwide emergency in terms of something militarily. Yes, other nations have uh, invaded other countries. Yes, other nations have uh, committed atrocities against other countries. This one affects us a ton. And it affects, by the way, it affects the food you buy. It affects the gas you put in your car. It affects all that stuff. All right, let me explain this uh, out of the gate. We usually have uh, a pair in for uh, Chatterbox, and we have uh, TV Ontario's host of the agenda, Steve Pakin, and we're usually joined by uh, the mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown. But unless uh, he's gone under, I know he was out and about on Sunday. I know our uh, other Chatterbox participants saw him in the flesh on on Sunday, but uh, we need a... This is like when my wife and I tune into Dateline NBC on Friday night and we're like, is this a Keith Morrison episode? We need a Keith Morrison investigation as to where Patrick. I know his Twitter account's active. I know that uh, Steve Pakin joins me now. Um, you know, you're, you're going to have to you're, you're going to have to double duty this here. You're going to have to. We can't put a pinch runner in for you. You're you're handling every you're not Vlad Guerrero late in the game where we need a more. Uh, you know, we got to put in uh, a Kevin Pillar type to uh, to get from first to third on a single. You got both both jobs today. I'm wondering how I'm going to play tennis with myself here. This is going to be a little <laughs> difficult, but okay. Okay. You know, you could, I'll play tennis with you. What the heck? You must've been a uh, briefly. Now this is uh, inside baseball and inside history. You must've been briefly a colleague of one Keith Morrison. I know he was at CTV for a long time. Were you briefly, did you know Keith at all? Not even for one second. No. But <laughs> okay. Holy smokes. Has he had a fantastic career. Right? <laughs> when you see Bill Hader do an impression of him on Saturday night live, you're like, Oh, you've made it. This is uh yeah, this is. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, and he, indeed. and, and, uh, and his level of excitement and, and, uh, and enjoyment goes up when, uh, when people go missing or found in trunks of cars or fall off boats. That's, that's the Bill Hader version. Not actually, I'm sure Keith yes, doesn't enjoy it, but he's, uh, He's so good. It's so fun. He's um this thing about Pam, this Renee Zellweger thing uh, is uh, he's front and center on that podcast. My wife listened to that and then she got really excited when the show came out, uh, which just started last week with Renee Zellweger on it. But, but can I just clarify something here, Greg? Yeah, of course. With, with, the, with the investigative power that your entire network has been able to bring to bear. You have not been able to find the mayor of Brampton this morning, is that right? <laughs> not in the last. I had a feeling I, I we didn't have a, uh, hey, I won't make it today. Uh, so he's, uh, but this goes to uh, your column and this goes to where, where it's all happening right now. This is a real pitched battle already. Um, Pierre Polyev had a video basically organized by Saturday night for Patrick Brown, for Mayor Brown, an hour before Mayor Brown spoke. And I'm like, yeah, he's not making videos about Leslin Lewis. He hasn't made a video about John Charest yet. So I do you do you sense that 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 is Pierre Polyev saying I do have a competitor. I do have somebody that might be able to mobilize and and say that they can do in Ontario what in the GTA specifically what Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Shear weren't able to. Like like Pierre's on this right away, isn't he? Oh yeah, and his look. He's got a really good social media team. I don't know if uh, how many of your listeners have been on social media to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of stuff, uh, the kind of product that uh, his team has produced. But it is, you know, by the standards of social media, it's really good stuff. It's got good narrative. It's well shot. Conversely, uh, John Charest's first uh, entry into, so first of all, he didn't have a Twitter account when he started his campaign. When he created a Twitter account and put his first I'm in the race thing out, it was Mr. Charest sitting at a table with an odd-looking red mug in the foreground. I wasn't quite sure what that did. It was sort of a distraction in the shot. He slouched in the chair, and in a rather uninspiring way, he says, I'm in the race, and I'm in it to win it. And i got to tell you, if you're, if, if, you know, if you're new to politics, and, and let's face it, a lot of people don't remember, uh, Jean Charest was conservative leader 25 years ago, mm-hmm. 
and, you know, Premier of Quebec more than a decade ago. If that's your first impression of Jean Charest coming into the race, it's not fantastic, I've got to say. Patrick Brown had a better kickoff on Sunday, but uh, you rightly point out that the uh, Polyev people were already after him on social media, even before he'd announced that he was getting into the race. So they're showing, the Polyev campaign is showing that they've got game on social media and that they intend to get, you know, there's usually a high road and a low road in politics, right, Greg? Mm -hmm. And uh, Brown and Charest are so far trying to take the high road. And um, Polyev has made it pretty clear that he's going to plant his flag on uh, getting down dirty and nasty in this campaign and, uh, you know, let the chips fall where they may. It, it really isn't ever, uh, you know, uh, Andre Agassi did that famous ad image is everything. And people were like, oh, it's something. But but you also might want to at that point, he was really young, win some tennis tournaments. It's not unlike the, the Nixon Kennedy debates. And you and I would have studied these in school to where people listening on the radio were sure Nixon won. But when they watched the debates, they liked John Kennedy a lot better. They thought Nixon was sweating and nervous and edgy and shifty. And Kennedy was just see it's exactly what Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton could hold a camera and hold a room and, and he talked to one person and make you feel like you were the most important person in the room. And, and I do wonder about that. That that's going to matter. That matters a ton in modern day campaigns. Yeah, and there's nothing new about that at all. As you point out, the JFK Nixon debate, that's back in 1960, for goodness sakes. And uh, what was it? The University of Toronto professor Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message. And yes, mm. even more so now that we're in an era of social media, for sure. You wrote the uh, the column, uh, the man who could have been premier about Patrick Brown. And I think it's a great anecdote for our audience too. Um, him recognizing you on a uh, on a flight <laughs> and you weren't sure who he was, but he uh, now that happens sometimes uh, you he knew uh, damn well who you were. And he struck up a conversation that, that you recalled. I found that story fascinating. I didn't know well, that. It's worse than that. It's more embarrassing <laughs> to me than, than the way you've characterized it. No way. I'm on a, on a flight. This is many years ago. I'm on a flight from Ottawa to Toronto and the fellow sitting opposite me in the next row, uh, you know, looks at me and says, uh, hey, you're Steve Pagan. I know you from TVO. Watch your show. Enjoy your show. Mm-hmm. We strike up a conversation. We're talking about politics, this, that, and the other thing. And finally, I say to him, so tell me, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'm the <laughs> member of parliament for Barry." And uh, yeah, it was Patrick Brown. And I hadn't a clue who he was. And the only reason I, I embarrassed myself that way by putting that story in, in the piece that I wrote is that it does show that Patrick Brown, while he was a member of parliament, really had no profile at all, right? He never made cabinet. He was never a committee chair. Uh, he was never a parliamentary secretary. Uh, Stephen Harper tried to keep him as buried as possible on the back benches. And yet, and yet, and yet, this guy obviously has some kind of game because look how well he's done since then. You know, he won the Ontario PC party leadership. Uh, it is well known how he lost mm-hmm. that leadership. He then went on to become mayor of Brampton, uh, despite the fact he didn't even live in Brampton and he was taking on uh, an incumbent. He managed to win that. And here he is not even having finished his first term and he's running for the leadership of the Conservative Party. And I've sure talked to a a, a lot of smart people who say this guy's got such good ground game. You just never know. He could pull it off. Yeah, that's that's what I'm hearing as well uh, since the weekend and late last week when it seemed obvious he'd uh, after his appearance with with you last Tuesday, it seemed obvious that that things were mobilizing for him to get in the race. And and that's just Steve, you nailed it. That's the phrase I keep hearing is, hey, you underestimate him. You underestimate him at your own peril. He can mobilize and they know they need another 15 to 18 seats in the GTA. They need to go up and down that 401, those 401, 403 corridors and pick a red seat here, pick a red seat there. And. There is going to be that question. If he's more moderate, there's a lot of people who may have gone in the voting booth, Stephen, voted for Justin Trudeau last October, um, but maybe they didn't love doing it. And, uh, and and they haven't done and they haven't voted blue in a long, long time, maybe if ever, but they might be thinking about it a little more the next time around. We don't know. That's the Brown game plan. And I well remember having Aaron O'Toole into our studio uh, after the last election in which I said, uh, Mr. O'Toole, you've got an MTV problem. And I'm not talking about rock videos on television. <laughs> uh, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. You have basically mm-hmm. no seats there. And we put up a map of the greater Toronto area, 40 plus seats. And the Conservative Party under O'Toole's leadership in that last election won two. Now, you're not going to form the government of Canada, even if you get the most votes. And let's remember, the Conservative Party has won the most votes in the last two elections. But even doing that, if you're going to go two for 44 in the greater Toronto area, you have no chance of winning. And this is Brown's unique selling proposition that as a Brampton uh, mayor, uh, as a guy who had a seat in Barrie, which is not too far outside the GTA, mm-hmm. 
Uh, as a former leader of the Ontario PC party, he has enough profile here to bring the Conservative Party back in the MTV. That's, the, that, that's his calling card. You know, whether he can do it is another story, but that's his unique selling proposition. Steve Pakin is joining us, anchor of uh, TVO's Current Affairs program, The Agenda with Steve Pakin. It airs at 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock tonight and weeknights Monday to Friday. I, I had this conversation over the weekend with somebody who kind of was using sports analogies. He's like, well, you got to have a good baseball regular season to make the playoffs. But I and, and so he's he's comparing that to winning the leadership versus winning the election. I'm like, I think they're total. They're, they're almost two different sports to become the most popular person within your party does not. You're not using all the same tools and all the same tactics and strategies as you are in a general election. Um, do I do I have that right? I, I think uh, at times the conservatives have mobilized behind people. The liberals did this, I think, behind Stefan Dion and, and, and Michael Ignatieff thinking we've got the best person. That's that's the, that's the person that we want to represent our values. Then they get out sort of the wilderness is more, you know, you're, you're a little less safe. It's the wilderness in a, in a federal election. And those guys were kind of lost debating Stephen Harper. That, that's a nice analogy, actually. I like the way you put that. The, the fact of the matter is the exercise the conservative party is going to be engaged in until, I guess, June the 3rd is the cutoff for signing up new members. Mm-hmm. The exercise is sign up as many new members as you can and get them out to vote. That's it. You know, and I know that, for example, when Patrick Brown won the Ontario PC leadership back in whatever that was, 2015 or so, uh, he understood what the game was about. You know, I, re- I well remember Christine Elliott, the current health minister. She was his competitor in that race. I well remember she had teams and teams of policy advisors and they'd sit around and they'd strategize about, you know, what are we going to run on and what this. Th- no, that's not what it was about. What it was about was signing up members and getting them out to vote. And Brown knew that. And he managed to sign up for a party that I think had maybe 20,000 members at that time. I think he signed up about 100,000 members, and he got the vast, vast majority of them to come out and vote. And he won going away. Now, he well understands that that's what you've got to do to win a leadership. And the question then becomes, he was able to do it in Ontario. Can he replicate that on a national basis and therefore win the conservative leadership federally as well? We'll see. How much of an influence, and I know you and I have talked about this before, how much of an influence does what happens in this province on June 2nd factor into the next federal election? For for quite a long time, um, I think I think Stephen Harper may have benefited from some uh, dismay, whether it was the Dalton McGuinty government or with Kathleen Wynne's uh, government. And then it flipped, obviously, to, to Justin Trudeau. And then that Justin Trudeau's um, prime ministerial run may have actually benefited the conservatives a ton. The train's coming for Kathleen Wynne. It comes eventually for incumbents. We know that. But I do wonder whether if it is indeed another Ford majority government, is that a good thing for the Conservative Party of Canada or, or any of these candidates? Well, I can tell you what history would suggest. And but then again, you just never know. Right. Mm-hmm. But history suggests that Ontarians do like to ticket split. Right. They like to put one party in power at Queen's Park and a different party in power uh, on Parliament Hill. And it has gone that way. Election after election after election, almost exclusively uh, since World War Two. There was a, a, a brief, I think, a brief exception to that rule when you had liberals in power in Ottawa, Paul Martin, liberals in power at Queen's Park, Dalton McGuinty. Uh, but that only lasted for, I think, a couple of years, and then uh, the same pattern reverted. And I well remember in 2011 when Stephen Harper won his majority government and the McGuinty government looked like it was going nowhere. I remember talking to the chair of the Liberal campaign after Harper won his majority and said, boy, boy, is that a signal that it's coming for you next? And he said, no, actually, we kind of like this a lot. And, 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 and that person was right, because when you give a big majority government to conservatives in Ottawa, you tend in the next election in Ontario, at least that's been the pattern, to ticket split. And of course, McGinty came back later that year, one seat short of a majority government, but uh, the pattern persisted. Well, and the irony there is, right, the last two elections, and, and we've documented this on, on this show, I'm sure you have on, on the agenda as well, for either Andrew Scheer or Ontario MP Aaron O'Toole, they preferred uh, Doug Ford during those campaigns be seen and not heard, especially the Scheer campaign. They were like Ford felt in a closet and Ford, you know, it wasn't as you know, he sort of became more premier esque after the pandemic began. And we can debate this and that and uh, about what what his governance has been since the pandemic. But he kind of found his wings through the pandemic. It would be <laughs> it'd be a really interesting scenario to see what a Patrick Brown would prefer Doug Ford do or not do, given the history, given what you wrote 
wrote about um, this week and 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 many people may be feeling that not only were the uh, obviously, you know, a, a bad story from another news organization, but there were obviously people mobilizing within the uh, the, the caucus to say um, whether the story is accurate or not, whether it's true or not, we need it. We got to get him out of here. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'd take issue with uh, a little bit with one thing you said there. Okay. They didn't want Doug Ford seen or heard. Never mind. They wanted them, uh, you know, seen but not heard. They wanted neither. They wanted them nowhere near. Yeah. And you know, that's uh, that they made their decisions and they suffered the consequences from that. And and yes, um, I think it's fair to say that CTV News made some fairly egregious errors in their reporting of what happened back in January of 2018, which eventuated in the ouster of Patrick Brown as Ontario PC Party leader. Um. They've come to some settlement. You know, the lawyers got to the language that satisfied both sides. Obviously, Patrick Brown wanted this resolved ASAP so that he could get it off his plate and run for the Conservative Party leadership without it being a burden over his head. Uh, that uh, that imperative was probably helpful to CTV and allowed them to get to a settlement faster than they otherwise might have. Uh, but now those decks have been cleared. People can argue about, um, you know, the validity of the settlement and mm-hmm. whether it's uh, you know, as fulsome an apology as uh, Brown is probably due. And, uh, you know, on we go. You can go to TVO.org and read Steve's column there, the man who could have been premier. You can watch him tonight at 8 o'clock on the agenda. Great. Uh, you know, again, we'll uh, we'll see who ends up uh, digging up uh, Mayor Brown first. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's going to be a fascinating uh, run in, as it looks like we've got at, le- at least two contenders um, that uh, look like they're ready to throw some heavyweight punches early on based on the last couple of days. Oh, I'd say three. I mean, Sheree, Brown, Polyev. There are certainly three heavy hitters right now, and, and we'll see. Uh, there, we, there may be some more candidates in the race. This race is going to be a lot more interesting than the previous two, that's for sure. I'd say for certain uh, that would be the case. Uh, thanks so much, Steve, for the time. As always, our listeners love hearing you. Great chatting with you. Thanks, Greg. Steve Pakin from TV Ontario. Gas taxes, I think, are interesting. We were talking about this at the uh, dinner table last night. Kids say you look stressed when you pump the gas, when you take us to soccer, or you drop us off at the movie, or you pick us up at the movie, or you do one and not the other. You you ride share. So what do we pay in taxes for gas? Great question. Here's the rundown. Um, there's fixed. There's a federal tax of ten cents that never moves. That's a fixed gas tax ta- tax on uh, a liter. Ten cents a liter. There's an Ontario road tax of fourteen point seven cents. With me so far, as Don Henley would say, 24.7 cents. Carbon tax, that's fun. That gets heavily debated. 8.8 cents per liter. So when you're adding it up, we're at we're at about 30, we're at 33.5 cents. The HST, gotta pay that, right? Hybrid sales tax, 13% of the price at the pump. So right now, today's price is about a buck. I did this with a buck seventy a liter as the equation. That's 21.25 cents a liter. The tax, that's the HST. And remember, we had the, that tax before that took us to 33 cents, 33 and a half. Total taxes on a liter of gas, 54.81 cents. So there's pressure not to raise the carbon tax next month. There's pressure on the provincial government. Let me tell you something really quick. Uh, Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca are up at night, panicked that Ford will cut, cut, a, cut the provincial tax on gas panicked that that'll be the case but if he takes off 5.7 cents let's say so then he charges nine cents a liter per road tax uh he wants the federal government to do the same he doesn't want to do it without the federal government matching that being the case we'll see if that's true but it it, we we already knew what we paid for taxes on gas so where is it all going to go it's a fascinating question a lot of people are wondering about it. I want to bring on uh, VJ Muraliteron, uh, a senior consultant at Energy Analytics from Calibra, uh, joining us all the way out from Alberta. VJ, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much for making the time here in Toronto today. Hey, great. Thanks for having me over. Appreciate so, it. Totally, sir. I lay all, all, out all that tax news, and people love to complain. Taxes here, taxes there. They sell a home. They they buy a car, but but it really does hit us at the pump. I don't. I think we we sometimes are resentful of. Uh, of the great men and women that own these gas stations or that, that are behind the counter. And we think, boy, they're raking it in. They're not. The government takes a ton of their money per liter, don't they? Yeah, they do. So the average taxes in Canada, volume rate is close to 50 cents a liter. So if you, depending on where you live, you pay higher or lower than that number. So Toronto or Ontario, you pay a higher amount than the national average. 
If you're in Vancouver, BC, you're even worse. So, but you're in Alberta, you're not too bad. So again, depends where you are, you pay high taxes. And it's the third biggest element in the gasoline cost. The first is the crude element. Right. The second is the defining margins and taxes. Actually, in some parts, taxes is the second element. Not even It's even higher than the refinery margins, to be honest, that influences gasoline pricing. So people ask me this, uh, and I don't have a good answer, so you probably will. What is it about the West Coast? What's, what is it about the West Coast in, uh, in Canada with British Columbia? And what is it in California? You, I, you may not remember the Will Smith film, I Am Legend, but there was like a new... Okay, so there's a nuclear apocalypse, and somebody pointed out over the weekend, gas prices in California now are higher than they were in the Will Smith movie, I Am Legend, after a nuclear apocalypse. So not great. W- what is it about California and British Columbia that make them yeah. so astronomical? So Pad 5, which is California and Washington on the on the West Coast, have the highest gas pricing in the whole of US. It's it's at least 30 cents to 40 cents a gallon higher, depending if it's gasoline or diesel. <laughs> so it, two, two, two things. One is uh, they have a carbon policy that's very stringent compared to the rest of the US. The LCFS influences the pricing quite a bit. And they use a, uh, a crude Import, import accrued, that is of higher value as well. So there are major factors that impact uh, the gasoline prices. Now, they, they do on carbon intensity. So depending on which crude you import, if you import a, a low-quality crude, you, you pay a higher tax on it. You import a high-quality crude, you, you still pay tax on it, but it's lower compared to the low-quality crude. So again, when you say high-low quality, it's about high sulfur content and low sulfur content. So long story short, they have very stringent policies that impact um, cost of production that impact the price of gasoline. And BC imports the marginal battle. The marginal supply of gasoline and diesel in BC does not come from Alberta, does not come from Ontario. It comes from Washington refineries in Pat 5. By de facto, folks in BC pay higher price because they import their marginal supply of gasoline from U.S. That's the impact in BC. Wow. Um, uh, that, that's a great breakdown. Thank you for doing that. VJ Murleader on our guest, uh, Senior Consultant at Energy Analytics from Calibra, uh, joining us on Toronto today. A lot of people like to get political about everything, so people saw Justin Trudeau want to push forward with the Keystone Pipeline. Joe Biden gets elected, cancels the Keystone Pipeline. I've heard two things about this, VJ. Clarify this for our listeners. One uh, is that you know a lot of the oil pumped would have been sold overseas and wouldn't have been used domestically so keystone wouldn't have changed prices very much second thing is um is whether or not this entire project is dead in the water if joe biden says well we need to pump more of our own out of our own uh ground could keystone be revitalized so yeah it's a two-part question could keystone rear its head again and secondly was most of that oil going to other countries anyway so, no, there's a, there's a mis- misconception about crude. Crude, uh, crude is not homogeneous. <laughs> so the, the crude that we produce in Alberta is cheaper. It's heavier crude. The U.S. refineries at the Gulf Coast, so Keystone is meant to take crude from Alberta all the way to the Gulf Coast. They, over the, since 1990, U.S. refining has been taking a tremendous change. They've added toolkits to process heavy crude from Alberta and Venezuela and other, other heavy, heavy producers. Yeah. So they have the toolkit in the back. So they can process the heavy crude very easily and make it into gasoline and diesel. And the heavy crude will be cheaper compared to the local crude in the U.S. that's WTI, Midland or WTI, uh, uh, you know, the regular WTI uh, Oklahoma benchmark. So what I'm trying to say is that if the if Keystone is there, they could get cheaper crude access from Canada, process the crude, and the entire gasoline price in the U.S. would fall because they have cheaper access to crude. They do not rely on Middle East. They do not rely on OPEC. That would secure energy supply for U.S. and North America. And how this affects Canada is that I'll tell you exactly how it affects Canada. Now, the prices in Canada are not based on demand and supply in Canada. It's based on demand and supply in the U.S. Why? Because if I'm a producer, Alberta and Quebec produce excess gasoline. If I'm a producer of gasoline, I have two options, sell it in Canada or sell it in the U.S. Whoever pays the higher price wins my product. Now, if U.S. gasoline prices are lower, then Canadian prices will automatically be lower because the price, the price war is not there. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do. So, I do. So this has a big implication indirectly on Canada that people need to understand.
So we got about a minute here. When you see um, oil drop below $100 a barrel, which it did yesterday, it was spiking around $130 a barrel last week. Does that does that create a translation? I know prices don't usually move on Monday, Tuesday. Will that translate? Do people, the average consumer, you and me, do we breathe a sigh of relief and say, we've got cheaper gas on the way? I mean, it's it's dropped $40 a barrel, maybe unpredictably in the last five days. Yeah, so it's dropped because of two things. One is uh, inflationary fears, and second is China's in lockdown. China is the biggest consumer of crude. In short, people are fearing that COVID's coming back and demand is going to dissipate. So that will bring fears across every refinery in North America. So by de facto, I'm not going to increase my margins. I'm not going to increase my prices. Uh, crude prices tumble simply because Wall Street Journal is reporting today that Beijing has imposed strict lockdowns in China because of rising COVID-19 cases. So they fear there's another, you know, break lockdown coming. Demand's going to fall. So that has created a shock in demand. And remember, what happened in March 2020 and April 2020 COVID-19 demand impact just propelled pricing down in astronomical levels. So all I'm trying to say is that fear of COVID is playing a big issue in these pricing uh, falling. It's even superseding the war in Ukraine. Wow. Yeah, I didn't. I wouldn't have th- said bigger than that. VJ, thanks so much. Fantastic insight. Really appreciate you getting up early uh, and making the time for our audience. Hey, absolutely. Love talking to you guys. Have all right. Appreciate it. VJ Muraliderun, our guest, senior consultant at energy analytics firm uh, Calibra. So I see the story yesterday. Um, is Roman Abramovich taunting Boris Johnson, Chelsea owner, right? Sanctioned oligarchs, 540 million pound. Uh, so that's almost a billion dollars Canadian super yacht. What's the difference between a yacht and a super yacht? Well, we're about to find out. And uh, uh, I had this conversation last night. Yacht to super yacht. Is that a bigger leap than model to supermodel? We're not sure about that either. But it sails within sight of Gibraltar before it heads beyond the reach of UK sanctions in Montenegro. That's the taunting part. Is Roman Abramovich ordering his super yacht that's worth a billion dollars Canadian uh, to uh, sail out of British territorial waters? It needs to go 5,900 miles. Is the captain a little nervous about that? He should be getting paid a pretty penny by the uh, the Chelsea owner, the Chelsea owner for now uh, at minimum. But there's a lot of fascination. For example, as we say, I'm not leaving the room. When I see a, a video of a yacht in the last two weeks, I'm, I'm staying with that story. I want to know what's about to happen here. And we got a lot of questions about it. So to answer those questions, uh, we cross the Atlantic and go to Sam Tucker, who's head of Super Yachts at Vessels Value. And he joins us uh, in Toronto on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Sam, it's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time for us. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Canada. It's great to be here. It's, yeah, it's great to have you. So, as I said, um, we're, all, uh, we're all watching this uh, with great um, anticipation, but we're all a little befuddled um, at the repossession about many of these yachts for Russian oligarchs. And, and Abramovich is the one, and I'm a football fan, so I'm, uh, you know, he's the one I know the most. So this is obviously um, emotional for a lot of people, whether they cheer for Chelsea, Man United, Man City. They're watching this happen in real time, and, and I'm sure you are in the UK also. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our office is actually a mile away from the uh, Chelsea ground. So, oh, yeah, you're in uh, West London. Really, okay. Really close to home. Yeah. How um, far How far are you from Craven Cottage? Um, I live about 200 meters away. I've always pretty, wanted to go to... Still. Always wanted to go to a Fulham match, and I've I've run past there, but they've never been playing at the right time in the uh, uh-huh. in the several. And then they're up and down, right between the Premier League and, <laughs> and the Championship, yeah, also, exactly. uh, yeah. which makes demand for tickets a little bit differently. So these these super yachts are getting picked up all over the world. The possession, the repossession process for this is fascinating. Like what what happens to the boats after they're taken from some of these men? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a really good question, and and the answer is no one quite knows. Um, we're, we're, we're breaking new grounds at the moment and sanctions on this level are pretty unprecedented. So we're seeing a lot of yachts getting frozen in the harbours, which means that people can't provide goods or services to them, means the crew can't get paid, um, and they technically haven't been repossessed. So uh, we don't really know what's going to happen, to be honest. So as I tell you that story about Abramovich, this billion-dollar Canadian uh, yacht anyway, 540 million pounds, if they get into international waters and there's no way for uh, UK authorities to either place sanctions up upon the boat or repossess the boat, 
uh, are those boats safe? So do we see a lot of boats traveling right now for safe havens, just to be certain? Yeah, we've seen quite a bit of that. And um, it, it's rumored that Abramovich has actually got more than one yacht. Um, we think he's got a small fleet, but he's got two yachts, uh, which are very large, uh, which are the ones which we're paying most attention to at the moment. Um, it, it's worth noting that he only allegedly owns them, right? We've never seen a bit of paper with his name next to them. Uh, but one of them um, is now in Montenegro, which mm-hmm. is still in the Mediterranean, but it's outside the EU. Um, and the other one has just come back from the Caribbean. It's just, as you say, gone through the Straits of Gibraltar. We're not quite sure where it's heading. So we're, we're watching it carefully to see where it might end up. We're talking to Sam Tucker, head of Super Yachts at Vessels Value. I don't want to take you away from your area of expertise, but this is something I see in the UK on a regular basis. And I think it goes back, you know, maybe a century where you'd hear... Uh, about the UK tax system. So you've got, you know, rock stars that don't want to live in in uh, in England. It's not for the attention, but it's Paul McCartney, it's Duran Duran, it's the Rolling Stones. And they say, well, we've got to live some of the time not in the UK to avoid a big tax bill. Is, is that still a thing among the uber rich in, in the UK that if they spend a bunch of time out of the country, they'd owe less taxes? Yeah, I mean, as you say, this isn't really our um, area of, of expertise. Um, but, you know, for, for the yachts, it, it's quite common for the yachts to be registered abroad in favorable um, jurisdictions such as Malta, mm-hmm. Monaco, perhaps perhaps the uh, Cayman Islands. Um, and, yeah, that is for tax reasons, but also, as you say, for privacy, security and, and legal reasons as well. So the, there's a there's a process then to figure out who owns these particular yachts. You say there's not much of a, a paper trail, say, for a Roman Abramovich yacht. Um, does that eventually go to a court and they determine, yes, we've determined it is your yacht? Like it's 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 not quite like shoplifting and leaving a store and something's either in your pocket or it's not in your pocket. There's a there's a lot more complicated process to be drawn out here. And probably Abramovich just wants to draw it out and and run the clock, as it were, and, and delay the process until a decision gets made. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, ownership is notoriously opaque in this industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and technically, all these yachts are owned by um, single purpose companies, you know, also referred to as uh, shell companies. And um, yeah, this is just a distance the owner from the assets. You know, we mentioned privacy, security, um, and legal reasons. Um, but but also, you know, imagine if one of these yachts crashes into an, a, an oil tanker and it's a massive environmental disaster. The owner wouldn't want to have his name next to that. Uh, they'd, they'd, they'd want to be somewhat distant. Yeah, I, I'm looking at some of the photos of uh, of some of the other um, oligarchs' uh, yachts. I, I see some of Abramovich's, uh, Melnichenko's yacht as well um, in Venice, mm-hmm. um, and he's. It's a weird one too because he's been added to the European Union sanctions list right now. The European Union yeah. hasn't sanctioned Roman Abramovich, so there's areas an Abramovich super yacht can go to um, without necessarily being seized or sanctioned, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's a bit of a moving target, but I think it's, it's safe to assume that once you go on someone's list, everyone else is going to put you on, on their list too. So mm. it, it's probably only a matter of time before Mr. Abramovich goes on to the other naughty boy lists as well. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Sam Tucker joining his head of Super Yachts at Vessels Value. So I'll ask that question out of the gate, and uh, you and I could have a, a pint somewhere and discuss the difference between a model and a supermodel, but we won't do that here. <laughs> so so t- tell the audience what the difference is between a yacht and a super yacht. It was the first thing we were talking about at home last night, uh, watching some of the, the footage of Abramovich's yacht. Yeah, so um, technically it's not a legal definition. It's just something which the industry ha- has adopted. Basically, when, when these private vessels get above 24 meters in length or about 78 feet, there's um, a different bunch of regulations and legal requirements that you have to comply with. And so there's very much a, a strong threshold at, at this length of 24 meters. So anything above then we call super yachts. Some people then go on to say, well, there's mega yachts and gig yachts, but no one's quite agreed on exactly um, <laughs> where, where those thresholds are. So we just stick with with uh, super yachts above 24 meters. It's a good, uh, it's a good ar- uh, argument point. What's a, what's a super yacht rental look like to us? I mean, it's one thing to rent, uh, you know, a Porsche or something or a limousine for a big, uh, 
big occasion. What's a what's a rental go for a super yacht for a day or a weekend for for the average? Well, I would say the average rich person, not the not the billionaires. Um, so you talk. So normally it's done on a on, on a weekly rate. Yeah. And um, and if we talk in in US dollars, uh, you can get a uh, a cheap one um, around the twenty four meter mark for uh, maybe. Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a week, and the most expensive yacht that's available for charter, um, it's I think it's 140 meters long, and it's about three and a half million uh, euros a week. So, oh, okay. So really, you know, we can we can we can cater for all budgets, really. Yeah, I mean, so you split it among 20 people. You're you know you're only talking about a quarter of a million pounds per person. I think I think that's doable. Yeah. Yeah, you got and and satellite on board, Sky Sports, um, ITV, like all all the fixings, right? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I can't miss that Man City Liverpool match uh, uh, in a few weeks from now. I mean, the title's up for grabs uh, all of a sudden. I'll uh, I'll leave it there. Sam Tucker, head of Super Yachts, thanks for being uh, so incisive and and answering some of the important questions about this. We appreciate you coming on. Cool, no problem. Thank you, Greg. It was awesome having you. Sam Tucker, uh, Super Yachts at Vessels Value. Shiba Siddiqui, our uh, producer and uh, on-air contributor, joins us now. By the way, we're, uh, my wife and I were watching uh, a tape of Saturday Night Live on the Global app, and we saw your PSA. We hadn't seen it yet. We see you outside a school with gloves on. It looks oh. cold. <laughs> There's a teacher, an, an educational assistant. And uh, and it looked like they wouldn't let you in the school, but I, I it was great. It looks great. Did you, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't. How seen have you it not yet. come? Yes, you have. You've seen no, it. No, I'm serious. I haven't seen it yet. Don't um, don't the, they send you a final copy to sign off on? You're they a, haven't yet. No, of course they don't. Okay, Please, so they just tell me sign here beforehand, and I never hear from them. But again. this is good. It's it's on Saturday. You're on Saturday Night Live. Oh, cool. someone had told me that about our our previous uh, television commercial in the fall, and I'm like, oh, good. Like you always <laughs> oh, wanted we, to be we, on we, SNL, and there and there we are. Oh, I didn't know that either. That's great. We've made it, Brady. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, so did you actually? Um, the the teacher's inside and you're outside, but it doesn't look like it's not like you filmed that. It's not minus fifteen, is it? Like you weren't freezing, it, freezing. What do you remember it about was that? Was probably minus twenty six. What? That day. I'm telling you, it was freezing. Where'd you film it that in Tuck Toyak Tuck, or were you no, actually in the GTA? <laughs> that was downtown Toronto. That was a school right in downtown Toronto. Yes, a public school. And uh, it was freezing. And then we were in between these apartment buildings. So there was like a wind tunnel. Oh. So it was even colder. <laughs> but good. I'm glad that you can look at it and I don't seem cold. It looked great. No, no, no. You were great. And uh, did they did they feed you? Did they get Gordon? I want to know if you got lunch out of it. <laughs> no, no. It didn't what? They don't lunch. bring hot chocolate and bagels <laughs> no, and uh, donuts? Too cold. It was too cold. It was too cold. To I think chew. there should be a sandwich selection. Yeah, egg salad, at least. <laughs> egg salad. <laughs> well, that's no, that's almost punishment for for something that goes uh, uh, goes badly. All right, so uh, COVID. You wanted to. Uh, you've got you got feelings and thoughts about I, COVID. You know Wait a I'm minute. I'm feeling. Well, I'm feeling. <laughs> what's COVID? I'm feeling great lately. I'm out. I'm about. I'm excited. The world is opening up again. I go to a restaurant. I barely have my mask on. I'm counting down till next Monday when I can feel a little more comfortable and only wear my mask in certain situations. My kids' masks are coming off. We're starting to look at travel again. And now a part of me is feeling a little nervous because there's, I think there's two camps right now. There's the people who are ready for the world to open up and then there are the naysayers who are telling you, no, you're going to you know, kill everybody around you. This isn't over yet. And I've been ignoring them for the most part because I just think a lot of it is very dramatic. Uh, and we obviously have to move forward cautiously you know, and, and assess the situation that you're in and the age of the people around you. That's right. Um, but it's not like we're never going to get sick again, whatever that is, when we have to be prepared for it mentally and physically. And then I heard Laura Tamlin Watts yesterday, who she's the founder and CEO of CanAge, which is the Canadian National Seniors Organization. And here's what she had to say. There really is this one-two punch style which is happening right now in Ontario that vaccines are not being mandated masks are being lifted and we're pretending like COVID-19 is over okay COVID-19 is not over I get it and then I'm also hearing about great this is what it's called stealth Omicron that's the name of the new 
mild or the new variant that's, you know, that you're hearing about all over the world. Have you heard of this name, Stealth? I have. I've, I've read about it. It doesn't right? seem it, it, there's there's zero evidence. It's more uh, more affecting than Omicron. Well, fast and, spreading. And it feels it's the country's so biggest outbreak. Yeah, I know. Well, yes, that's true. But I'm telling you, as I'm skipping down the street, you know, loving all this beautiful sunshine, I'm also thinking, am I going too fast? I'm questioning myself. So there's not a part of you that's wondering that's a little bit hesitant. Honestly, zero. Zero really? right now. See, I'm, I love I'm full that. speed I ahead get there. And, and I, I, I realize as well, like I, I take great umbrage uh, with uh, some of the language last week used by some of these doctors who uh, who've been wrong so much, so yes. much since last summer. Like like honestly, like asking Colin Furness what's going to happen with the next. Like, why don't you ask the Detroit Lions what it's like to play in the Super Bowl? You have a lot against this doctor. I, I, I just, I, I don't get it. I don't get why we keep going to places where people were wrong and and overemphasized what was going to happen, and we keep going back. Is is it they give you the best? Co- I get it, right? If if uh, if they're going to be the most dramatic people to talk about things like that, I get why we head back. Uh, to the Furnesses. I, I I guess I understand it to some extent. He's also not a doctor. He's also not treating patients. I got like if, if Michael Warner's telling me something's happening with patients or Suman Chakrabarty's telling me something's happening with patients, I get that as well. But I don't I don't see this. And we are I'm watching the you know, I'm seeing the Alberta numbers every day go down. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. I'm looking forward to the world opening up again. But I do have some reservations because I'm seeing a lot of people online telling me that I'm crazy to be thinking this way. Here's so what I'd I'm, say also about Laura is is um, obviously long term care is um, I, I know I know what that's like with my father in law very well and I, I I also think that we should be able to choose. He hasn't been able to see his daughter's face mm-hmm. or my face since he's gone in there. We haven't even in outdoor settings been able to take our mask off. He doesn't wear one, but we do. I, so, I'm sorry. So At a certain point in time, after two years, we get that choice. We yes. get that choice in an outdoor setting. Are you you got to be insane to think that we're going to go three, four years. Put these people in these places where the workers do the best that they can and in limited. I got all day to talk about long term care and what we need to do better. But I'm sorry. Like th- there's a point in time where families get to choose how how it all goes for them. There There is. Yep, I'm with you. Thanks oh, for the pep talk. Oh, it's <laughs> I. You tell me when you need another one. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks so much for checking out Toronto today and listening to the show. Whether it's in the daytime, whether it's at night, we appreciate you consuming us wherever and however. Feel free to subscribe, share with a friend, and spread the word on the good work we're trying to do day in, day out. Back with a live show tomorrow, which you can hear on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640Toronto.com. Have a great day.